Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and if you've arrived here, there must be a reason. I'm guessing you're curious to learn more about improving your wellbeing alongside ADHD, or maybe looking for some advice or guidance to feel healthier and calmer. So, why start this podcast? I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and I discovered my own ADHD alongside one of my daughters at the age of 40. And now, after supporting many other women just like me, and probably you, I feel there's a need for more emphasis on well-being and lifestyle help for women with ADHD. And through the podcast, I want to offer you new insights and perspectives to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and balanced life. So wherever you are on your ADHD journey, my aim is to support you in finding the awareness and the most aligned tools to enhance your well-being so you can make the most intentional mindset and lifestyle choices moving forwards. Ready to get started? Here's the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast and today I have Sarah Templeton as my guest. Now Sarah is a bit of a different one this week because she's absolutely fascinating and her background is the prison system. Now Sarah is now an author and she's a charity campaigner but she was a former prison counsellor and now runs Headstuff ADHD Therapy which is probably the UK's biggest team of diagnosed ADHD therapists. And she also runs a charity, ADHD Liberty Headstuff. And that is to do with the prison system and offenders. And we'll get onto all of that. But it's just so interesting to hear your story, your background and where it's led you. Because you've only been diagnosed ADHD for how many years has it been now? Um, I was diagnosed in March 2015. So I've got dyscalculia, so my math is rubbish. But what's that? Nearly seven years? Seven years. Seven years? Yeah. So what, what you've achieved in seven years is just astronomical because you are the most passionate person I know uh, who talks about ADHD. You know absolutely everything. Oh, God. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I genuinely believe that you do. You've, you're very insightful. And I think you, what you're doing now to make... a big change this is these are big sort of groundbreaking changes it is going to be monumental I think for ADHD and in our country in the UK so thank you Sarah welcome pleasure pleasure so tell me a little bit about your background in the prison system and then when did you start recognizing ADHD maybe in the prison system but also within yourself Mm. Well, that is the fascinating thing, I, I think, for me anyway. I started working in the prison system in about 2005 and six, and I got on extremely well with these offenders. This was an adult male prison, but I was working with a lot of boys in their early 20s and uh, up to about, you know, 32, 33. And I could never understand why I got on so well with them. I got on brilliantly with them. I understood them. And although I've never, ever committed crime or been arrested for anything, I seem to get these boys and these men more than anybody else. And I had absolutely no idea why. But then I decided I loved it so much. I was a volunteer and then a tutor in the prison system at first. Um, they only made me a tutor because I was the only volunteer that they could trust to be alone with the boys. So they left me with 16 boys on my own every Monday afternoon. So they said, we've got to pay you. So I said, that's fine. You can pay me. So I was a tutor for a while. And then I thought, I need to do this more professionally. I want to train to be a counsellor. 
So I then left and started to do my counselling training. And then I went back to do my placement in a young offender institute. Now, I was very snobby in those days. And I thought, oh, God, young offenders. What, that's going to be snotty teenagers. I've no desire to work with them. I'd loved my boys and my men in their 20s and 30s. You know, I thought that was my age group. So I then went to work at Aylesbury Young Offenders, pre-judging like crazy. And then I met my very first ADHD teenager, as it turned out, who was 19. And from that minute, I have just loved, adored and worshipped working with young offenders because, again, I got them. I got them like nobody else. I, I totally understood them. I totally got that they hated authority, that they hated being told what to do, that they always felt they knew best. They didn't like being told what to do, where to go, what time to do anything. And I loved their feistiness. I've always loved feisty people and I loved their feistiness. So when I was working with them, I was very much saying, look, you know, keep up the feistiness. You can be feisty, but try and keep it on the right side of the law so we can get you out of this hellhole. And that was kind of how I worked with them. And then during that time, I started working with the young offenders in 2014, no, 13, sorry, 2013. And then I was diagnosed in March 2015 when I was in my second young offender prison. And it was then that this massive light bulb went off. And I was like, oh, my God, the reason I get them is because I am them. I'm the same. I'm the same as them. And it suddenly made sense. So from that day on, I've tried to work with the knowledge that I was gaining very, very gently at first because I didn't know anything about ADHD. I mean, I was... When I was diagnosed, I was two months off my 52nd birthday. Nobody had ever once in my entire life, ever once suggested I was ADHD. Never. So when a counsellor said to me, has anybody ever suggested you're ADHD? I just looked at her like she was off another planet. and said, no, why? And she said, because <laughs> I think you are. Go home and Google it. So I literally, when I Googled it, my entire, and I mean my entire 52 years made sense, complete sense. You know, that I suddenly realized why I always feel I know best, why I've always worked for myself, why I don't like being told what to do, why, although I know other people have got valid opinions, I still think mine's the right opinion. And I, I've, I've really struggled with that over the years a lot because, you know, I'm kind of known that I'm not always right, but I still feel that I always am. So it's very <laughs> difficult. So once I read all this, I'm like, oh my God, this is why I interrupt people all the time. This is why I can't be told anything. And also my further diagnosis of severe dyspraxia dyscalculia and sensory processing disorder made literally uh, made all the pieces of the puzzle fit together because I've never understood up until that point why I could be so really good at so many things well it sounds awful so many things so good at a certain amount of things and then appalling and atrocious at so many others I couldn't ever get it I couldn't work out how it fitted together you know it just didn't seem to make sense and then suddenly when I realized, oh, the ADHD thinking, you know, best wanting everything your own way, that's that bit. And then the other bit, the falling over, the dropping things, the breaking things, the damaging myself, the dropping my tea down my T-shirt every single night, you know, all of that, that was the dyspraxia. It was suddenly, it was like a massive, great big, well, a 52-year-old jigsaw puzzle that suddenly every minute of those 52 years suddenly made sense. So it was amazing. And I've used that with these young offenders to say to them, right, I get it. I get why you're like you are now. And that's fine. And you don't have to be in prison because you're like that. You can be out of prison and you can do stuff that's exciting and thrilling. And since then, you know, I've gone to work with clients who are literally stuntmen in Hollywood and amazing clients who were doing these incredibly thrill-seeking, risk-taking things, but they're doing it legally. And that's what I try and instill in my young offenders. And my, my classic of all time, 
was one who at 13 was arrested for armed robbery and is now trained to be a lawyer hmm. because I managed to instill into him over 18 months. You can go down that path. Of course you can. That's your choice. No one's going to stop you. You're ADHD. You know best. So if you want to go to prison for 10 years, of course you can. Or you could do something different. And then I worked with him for 18 months. And that boy now just finished his A-levels and has just started to train to be a lawyer. And that if I could get hold of every young offender, every teenager that's going down the wrong path, I would. If I could sit every single one in front of me for a few hours and just explain to them that, yes, all that anger, all that rage, all that frustration, all that hatred that they've got of everything, you can use that to your good and to other people's good. And a lot of them do. So my boys now, a lot of my boys that were going down the wrong path, three of them that have been arrested, one's now training to be a doctor, one's now training to be a lawyer, and one's on a professional football contract. So that's my passion, you know, showing these boys that your ADHD does not need to make you a bad person. So that's my passion is communicating to these people that there is a choice. That's the, that's the difference. A lot of them don't think there's a choice and mm. there is a choice. You can yeah. use your ADHD to the good. You really can. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, I mean, first of all, you can just hear the passion coming out of every, you know, lay of your skin. But what I'm I'm interested in is you're talking about the boys in prison. How about the girls in prison? What are you seeing with the fact that ADHD, the awareness in girls is very behind boys? Yeah. What's 100%. going on? Is it the same? Are the girls in prison? It's the same, a... yeah. I, I tell you, I've literally just put the phone down on a client, a girl who's 32, who literally has been into her doctor. This is now, she's been into the doctor and she's been told you cannot have ADHD because you're not a boy. That is now. She. I've just put the phone down on her from before speaking to you. So, yes, my experience has always been working with young offenders and adult male in prisons. However, I've also worked for addiction services. Now, as a lot of people know, addiction and ADHD can go hand in hand and very often do, especially undiagnosed ADHD. So when I was working for the addiction services, that was fascinating because there were a lot of girls coming out of prison and their first stop was the addiction service. They literally had to go in that day to pick up their script. Um, and then they would be taken on somewhere else by their key worker. So I saw all these girls uh, coming out of prison and they were all young. They were all 20s. I don't think there was one that wasn't ADHD. I didn't get to spend a lot of time with them because it was very transient. Yeah, they were coming in, signing, but all of them were very chaotic, very quick, spoke very quickly. And when I looked at all of them, I thought, oh my God, I think you all are. And nobody's picking it up because you're girls. And this is this is what I think is still shocking that there are still doctors and, and even more shockingly, there are psychiatrists who don't think women can have ADHD. And another thing that irritates me is so much is when people talk about the presentation in women is different. No, it's not. The presentation in inattentive ADHD is different to combined ADHD to hyperactive and impulsive. But, but saying ADHD presents differently in women is very insulting to the lot of men. And I've worked with hundreds of them who've got inattentive ADHD because men with AD inattentive ADHD present exactly the same as women with inattentive ADHD. So I don't yeah. go with this. It presents differently in girls. No, it doesn't. The three presentations all present very differently, very differently, but that can be male or female. But yes, from what I've seen, and I've also, I, every single time there's a television program on about prisons, addiction, young offenders, I've watched more documentaries than pretty much I would imagine anybody. I've been obsessed with prison programs since I was a teenager. When I now watch those programs set in women's prisons, it, it strikes me that a good proportion, I would say more have got ADHD in there than haven't. That's just my, from watching it. 
A lot of women are in prison for different reasons to men. Men go to prison often for violence, criminal damage, drug dealing, that sort of thing. Women go to prison a lot because they've been dealing or they've been working for a man who has been controlling their income because they're addicts. So if you remember that women, women with ADHD are more prone to being in abusive relationships and controlling relationships. And that's what I see with a lot of the women. They seem to be quite strong, feisty women, but they've been controlled by usually a male. And that's often why they end up in prison because they've been dealing, sex working, all that sort of thing, because they have been more prone to abusive relationships. I think that's a really interesting thing about women and ADHD. I'm, as you know, one of the feistiest, probably ballsiest people that most people have met. But when I was 19, I was in an abusive relationship for two years. You know, I was everything about, it wasn't even called controlling and coercive in those days, but it would be now. My boyfriend then, he cut me off from my family. He didn't let me work. He didn't let me have my own money. And in the end, he started to beat me up. So at the beating up stage, I left, but it was very difficult to leave him. But I've been in a controlling and coercive relationship and I understand how ADHD women fall into that more easily. We do because our self-esteem is lower. So we're so grateful when somebody really attractive, as this, this one was, um, wants us that we overlook a lot of the, the red flags. And this was my first relationship, so I didn't really know what red flag was. I know it now. I'd spot a mile. But at the time, I was just so grateful that there was me, this clumsy, falling over, breaking things, damaging things, you know, hyperactive nightmare, that somebody actually wanted to be with me. And I fell into that. And I've met a lot of older women, I'm saying when I say older, I mean 30s, 40s, 50s, who've been in these abusive and controlling and coercive relationships for way longer than they should be, even when they realise that's what they're in. They find it very difficult to get out. Boy, do I understand that because it was difficult enough when I was 21. A lot of these women have got children, you know, mortgages, that they're so entrenched in those relationships. And it's very difficult for them to realise that they're actually in an unhealthy relationship. And that's largely connected to the ADHD. We are more prone to abusive relationships, which is sad but true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're saying is so, it's shocking. But when you say about the self-esteem side, you can really understand that because it's, that's been, you know, since a child, it's been layers and layers of different conditioning and criticism and people just kind of, beating you down a little bit saying you know what's wrong with you why can't you do this and mm. eventually that self-esteem is going to crumble and how you're explaining it with regards to see women in prison that's an extreme but when you're getting women coming to you who just put the prison system aside now and you're they've been in abusive relationships there's been addiction this is all walks of life, isn't it? This doesn't have to be, these are women who have got successful jobs, who have got families, they've got careers. And the ADHD, if it's undiagnosed, can wreak havoc on your life. And then the minute you get that diagnosis, I know you, you were 52 and I was 40, and there's spectrums of the ADHD and there's different ways the ADHD can impact your life. But from speaking to people, you know, who contact me from the podcast and, you know, clients, there has always been a level of trauma somewhere. There's been a lot of sadness. They've had hard lives. And then the ADHD diagnosis comes. And like you say, it's just this epiphany of your whole life making sense. 
what what do you see sort of presenting when people come to you when women finally get that the penny dropping moment of now I understand uh, what I'm seeing most with women is shock because a lot of the people that come to me come because they think their children either one child or more have got ADHD and as soon as I start to say how hereditary it is and that it's you can get ADHD from other reasons but the vast majority of the time it's hereditary and what I see a lot is women who are with an ADHD partner and they, the husband often, and they think the ADHDs come from the husband. So usually what I see with women is them coping. I don't, I'm sure you know this. They say that women have better coping strategies and mechanisms than men. Men often either clam up and don't communicate, whereas women are very good communicators and will sit and have a moan and go, oh, my God, this is driving me nuts, that's driving me nuts. Men don't do that so much. And also men will often turn to the, uh, the alcohol, the drugs, the coke, those sorts of coping strategies rather than communication, which is not usually their strong point. So the women I see are usually pretty sure that the ADHD has come from the dad. And I love it when I see, I see the sort of realisation in their face and they go, oh, well, actually, well, I could never concentrate at school. And actually, I'm always fiddling with something on the set. And I can see it going really gently coming into their mind that they might not be. This is the mistake everybody makes. Everybody thinks that just because I'm not like him. So because they're not like their eight-year-old, they don't think they can be ADHD. When I start to tell them that, no, actually it presents differently. I've never met two ADHD people the same. And I've met thousands. You know, there, there are two that are identical. Everybody's got lots of different traits, lots of different severities, lots of different comorbidities. Um, so when these women who are usually 30s, 40s, sometimes 50s, and the oldest ones I've had in their 60s, when that penny drops, it's amazing, absolutely amazing, because suddenly, like me, they can make sense of their whole life. It's not just what's going on now, it's everything. And I think that's the biggest thing with women is that because we cope better, and I'm criticising men here because I adore all my male clients, but men on the whole collapse more or they go to the coping strategy, they go to the drink, they go to the drugs, they go to the whatever. Women, we hold it together for the children and because we're often looking after elderly parents and because we're running the home, all this sort of stuff. It's really tough when you're ADHD. I never managed it. The reason I didn't have children was it overwhelmed me, just the thought. The thought of having a child and having to take responsibility for it staying alive and not stabbing itself in the eye. I didn't have children for that very reason. I knew I wouldn't manage and I knew I'd be an anxious mess. This was years before I knew I was ADHD. I just knew my anxiety would ruin it because I would be so paranoid the whole time about it damaging itself or it falling off or, you know, something. So these women who have done that and have had children and have had jobs, a lot of them, and have had successful relationships, the thing they've done more than anybody else is hold it together. So when you actually say, actually, you have held it together and you've been brilliant, but you've also done it with undiagnosed ADHD, the relief that they feel that somebody actually recognises that, yeah, this has been extremely tough, actually, and it's nearly killed me, some of them, but yeah. they, have, they have done it. They've pulled it together and, and kept it. So mostly that's what I find. And with younger girls, this is quite interesting, with the very young girls, like the 18, 19, 20-year-olds, there's a lot of disbelief. They don't believe that they can have ADHD, but they also think it's a childhood thing that little boys have. So that age group tend to be a little bit more dismissive of it. But people who've lived with it for longer, people who've lived as an adult for 20, 25 years, and they know about the anxiety, they know they've had terrible sleep problems, you know, they know they can't relax, whatever their traits are, they're much more aware that there could be something wrong. 
when they're 18, 19, 20, they still think there's nothing wrong with me. Perfectly normal. I'll be fine. And this is what I always say to people, that you can't deny the ADHD. It's not going anywhere. If you've got it, you've got it. And the people that I do know that have ignored it and denied it, sadly, they've all ended up in very sticky situations because it doesn't go away. You can't ignore it. It can be so overwhelming. And women are living in this sort of perpetual state of anxiety and hypervigilance and overwhelm, thinking that that's just the way they need to be living and they just need to deal with it. And then we can sort of like gaslight ourselves into, you know, like, come on, like, why aren't you coping? And your friend next door is coping. And that can be really hard. Yeah, that's absolutely massive. So, so many of the people that I work with, they do, they look at their friends and they look at their, their husband, you know, who, who their husbands are, the wives and how they cope and how they all seem so calm and so serene and everything's so easy for them. And they just feel like massive failures because everything is so difficult for them. I've spent my, what you were saying before, I spent most of my life feeling like a massive failure. All I ever heard from my mother was, why do you have to do everything in such a tearing hurry? If anyone's going to knock it over, it's going to be you. You know, all I heard over and over and over and over, and I still do, and I'm nearly 59, she's still saying it now, is just negative comments all the time about stuff that is very natural for me. So we do hear so much more criticism, and I think women take that more to heart. I also think, go right back to the home, that that, that boys tend to get criticised less when they're children because a lot of people go, oh, but he's a boy, he's a boy. They leave him be, whereas the girls are expected to be neat and tidy and not spill things and not drop things and not fall over and not all those things. So the expectations on the girl, things are changing a bit now, but definitely when I was a child, I was expected to be neat and not fall over and not scrape my shoes. I was forever falling over and scraping the tops of my shoes you know, and always being told off for that. Well, now I know I've got severe, severe dyspraxia. It's no wonder I was falling over and scraping my shoes. But when you've had literally 18 years of that solid until I left home, because it was just constant criticism, absolutely constant. And that's a lot of women grow up with that. And, and massively that contributes to the low self-esteem. I see that in nearly all the women I work with, that I spend a lot of time building people up and telling them that, you know, because you've got ADHD, You just accept that some of these things that come with it are negatives and they are annoying and they are frustrating and they do get on your nerves. But that is part of the ADHD. You can't control that. You just accept it, ignore it and focus on the positives and push forward with the positives whilst always acknowledging the negatives, but not focusing on them. Because I find that people who focus on them become quite depressed, quite negative, and they almost self-sabotage. They will think, oh, I've got this, I've got that. That means I'm hopeless. That means I'm useless. That means I'm this. And they're not at all. So, but the good thing with working with women is that they're very easily talked out of that. When you explain to them, actually, no, that is part of your ADHD. You were born with it. There's nothing you can do about it. So let's not dwell on it. We accept it, but we don't dwell. Instead, let's dwell on what you can do and what you are brilliant at and what you could possibly do. And like one of the only, I said the only, I was pretty not brilliant at school. I only liked history, drama, and English. And the only, I loved history, any stories I loved. I was very good at drama. I did quite a lot of acting. And then I loved English. It was my English teacher who, again, you know, typical ADHD, treated me with respect, treated me like an adult when I was 12. I loved her. And she always said to me, she said, Sarah, you should be a journalist. And that's always stuck in my head that my English was good enough for me to be a journalist. And then literally when I was 55, a friend talked me into writing my book and I wrote a book. But I think in the back of my head, rather than my mother's, if anyone's going to break it, it's going to be you. If anyone's going to fall over, it's going to be you. 
Why do you do anything in such tearing hurry? All of that was going on. But equally, my English teacher saying, you know, she was, my English teacher also gave me an A plus and she said, it's the highest mark I've ever given anybody. And I don't give this lightly. She gave me an A plus for one of my essays. And that was when she said, Sarah, you should write professionally. That's always stayed with me. You know, that's always stayed with me. And so I think people being positive to ADHD people has way more impact than perhaps neurotypicals who aren't used to all the negatives. I think we cling to the positives mm. because we need to. And that's what I try and do with clients. I always try and make them see the positives. And yeah, none of them have got dyspraxia, dyscalculia or dyslexia. It's, it's very unusual for a client of mine not to have either dyscalculia or dyslexia. They've usually got one of the two. But if they've got, you know, one of I say, right, well, you know, let's forget numbers then. We focus on the good, whatever it is. Not one of my clients has gone on to achieve what they wanted to achieve. They've all come in thinking, oh, well, I'd really love to do that, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I just let them know, well, why not? It can happen. It definitely can happen. And every single one of them have achieved what they've wanted to achieve. I've done it with hundreds now. So I, I don't do it anymore much because I know I can do it with them. It's just, it's just a question of self-belief. And a lot of people with ADHD do not have that self-belief. And once you get them to realize where that lack of self-worth comes from, and it usually comes from having all those ADHD traits that have been criticized so much, once you get them to realize that that wasn't you personally, that was the ADHD that was being criticized. But nobody picked that up at that time. So we can't blame your mother. We can't blame anybody. It just wasn't picked up. So we'll forget all that and we'll focus on what you actually can do. And once you do that with people, they fly. They absolutely fly. But a lot of these negative um, sort of messages that they've had, it can really hold people back. And the thing that I find most with people, I mentored homeless people. When I started helping people, wait for I was counsellor, I mentored homeless people. And some of them I'm still friends with now, 25 years later. And a lot of them were girls and they've all achieved what they wanted to. One of them, two of them, for example, one's now a teacher and one is a university lecturer. Both of those girls are ADHD. They're both now in their forties. And both of them came to me in the pits of despair, thinking their life was over. They were both addicts at the time. Uh, they had no hope. They'd been told they were pieces of rubbish. One girl had even been told at school, you'll end up on the streets. And then she was on the streets. They both credit me with changing their life, which is not true. All I did was believe in them. Both of them, I said, you know, one of them wanted to be a teacher. I said, all you've got to do is go to night school. She's got two little two kids by this time, a two-year-old and a three-year-old. We found a college with a creche. She put the kids in the creche. She went to the college and she's now a fully-fledged teacher. The other one wanted to be a drama teacher at university, which is what she now is. So, and both of them, as I say, credit me for changing their life. I did not. All I did was make them believe in themselves. That was all I did. So powerful. And what you're describing there are typical ADHD traits because I do think we're gutsy. I think we're very curious. We're open. We love trying new things. But like you say, that disconnect is the self-belief. I see it with my clients as well, where they come to me and they're working in jobs that are just so not ADHD jobs, but they are criticizing themselves for not being able to be interested or finding it boring, wanting to leave. And I'm saying, well, why, now that you have this knowledge of ADHD, why are you working in resistance to your brain? Why are you not leaning into that amazing brain? And then I say to them, well, what do you enjoy doing? And they list off all these amazing talents and skills that they've got. And I said, well, are you utilizing those, them in your job right now, in your career right now? No. Okay. 
And but it takes someone else, doesn't it? That's why coaching and therapy and everything is so amazing because you, I think with ADHD, we internalize our thoughts are just going round and round. We're ruminating. When we externalize our thoughts, whether it's, you know, speaking or journaling or, or speaking to a therapist, we all of a sudden make sense of ourselves. We make sense of what we want. And that's really empowering. So I have so much belief in ADHD. Like when I get a new client and they tell me, and I'm I'm like buzzing because I know what's deep down and what's underneath those layers because I know there's huge amounts of potential. But sadly, they've just not encountered people like you, like me, that want to like tap into that talent and bring it forward, which is why we see so many amazing entrepreneurs with ADHD. We see incredible, successful business owners we see actors, creators, artists, musicians, because there is that very special talent, I think, that we've got. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, one of my clients a very long time ago, um, this is a, a good story, but I'll keep it quick. She was head of English at a school in London and hating it because she adored working with the children, but was hating the travel. She's ADHD and ASD massively successful teacher but hated it her dream and I said to you know what's your absolute dream you know she said well I, I can't leave because I love the kids I said okay but you love the kids but you don't love the kids in that environment what else could you do and her dream was to have her own classroom in her garden and she worked there full-time as a teacher 18 months later that's what she did she left the school she was going to work part-time I think part-time worked for about a term before she had to leave and go full-time and she now employs another teacher so there are two of them who work from this garden. And this girl, she's a head of English, so brilliant at English, obviously, but also a karate teacher. So what she said her dream was, was to combine education with kicking off, basically. So she wanted to be able to educate kids for half an hour and then ha have half an hour doing karate and, and chopping up bits of wood, you know. So that's what she did. She had a classroom built in her garden. She now had that knocked down and a big classroom built. And she, she converted her garage into a studio. And she now has parents come from all over the country, to, especially at weekends, to bring their kids for the education in the classroom and then the karate stuff. So that was her absolute dream. And with 18 months, she made it come true. You know, she, so, so people can, they absolutely can, but a lot of them feel restricted by the system. And I always tell people with ADHD, just forget the system. The system isn't made for us. We're not interested in the system. You know, we do it different. So whatever people's dream is, I don't think there's one that, I mean, even the professional the boy who's trained to be a professional footballer, he is riddled with anxiety. I didn't even want to go to the trial. And he said he'd only go if I went. So I went, of course, and he did the trial and he got signed up, but his anxiety nearly held him back. So even with people like with severe anxiety and a lot of women have got anxiety, I always say to them, we accept the anxiety. I'm very anxious. You know, that's why I never make appointments in the morning because I won't sleep the night before. My anxiety is off the scale. Mine, it's ridiculous. So this is what I would say to ADHD people. Don't try and fit into the world. Make the world fit into you. If you can't do mornings, I've got loads of clients who hate mornings, you know, they despise mornings. So that's fine. Get a job in a nightclub. I used to work in the nightclub when I was younger. I was PA to the manager. Everybody starts at six o'clock there. You know, everybody sleeps all day, goes in at six, goes home at three, stays up to about five or six in the morning eating and then goes to sleep for the day. So there are jobs that work and that will make you happy and fulfilled. Like you say, you can be fulfilled by making the world work for you and your ADHD. Don't, I, I, I don't like it when clients are miserable and, and have given up because they think that 
life is never going to work with them, that mm. they're not, you know, I'm saying, no, forget that. Chuck that out of the window. Decide exactly what you want and then make the life that fits you. I think what you're saying is we can choose to either be in victim mode and feel sorry for ourselves. And I've seen that, really have seen, I've seen that in my family. Or we can choose to, like you say, make life work for us. We don't have to fit around the system that's telling us that we've got to be like mm. everyone else. And then when, I think when we accept that, it's really freeing. I never thought that my job would be this because it's not, when people ask me what I do, when I say, well, I'm a podcaster and I'm a coach and and I do it all from home and I do it in my, in my hours. And I've, I've created a job and a career that works for me around my family and also works for my ADHD. If I'd gone and worked for someone else, I think I just, I don't even know how I would have coped. I think my mental health, my anxiety would just be, you know, rock bottom. Mm. But mm. I must have had this innate understanding about myself from a, quite a young age that has rec helped me recognize what works and what doesn't work. But it's not run of the mill, you know, and I see people who are, who are very run of the mill and doing very typical jobs and leading very normal lives. And it does make you feel a bit like, oh, God. But then you speak to other people with ADHD and you realize this is how we're meant to work. We're not meant to fit in the box. We're meant to create Absolutely. our own boxes. And that's when it gets really exciting. That's when it gets exciting because that's when we see people thinking of new ideas and new concepts. And I loved what you said about your client with the karate and the and the teaching. Because who says that we can't blend those two things together? Who says that yeah. we can't work from our garden and bring children in and do it that way? And but it just you don't you're not told that at school, are you? You're not told that at university that just think outside, think outside the periphery mm. of what what you're shown. Yeah especially if you've got parents who one of them was ADHD and potentially was probably quite miserable in their life and their career, um, that they struggled mentally, they perhaps struggled addiction-wise in their relationships. And then we're given this opportunity with this awareness, you know, we're having, we're able to get diagnosed as women and we're able to be like, okay, where we are, we've got access to therapy, we've got access to, you know, coaches that understand us, that we, I think it's such a, I think it's so sad if we stay in the lives and the jobs that aren't working for us, if we have the awareness. I kind of think it's like a second chance, isn't it? It's a second opportunity to grasp life and just be you, be the authentic you that is meant to be. Yeah. Also, I think inattention comes into it. You know, we don't notice things a lot of the time. We don't notice what we're good at. We don't notice what people are saying. You're brilliant at that. You're excellent. We don't notice. And instead we focus on that, yeah, but I'm crap at this, and I'm crap at that, and I'm rubbish at this, I'm rubbish at that. And it takes somebody to say, well, it's stop, just stop from it. And let's just think what you're brilliant at and think what you really want to do. And then let's see if we can make that happen. And in every, I'm not saying I'm a miracle worker because I'm not. This, this is them that have done it themselves. Every single one of them that has wanted to change their life has purely because they've then believed in themselves and they've then taken the steps, very baby steps. I'm a big believer in baby steps but baby, baby, baby steps towards what they really wanted. And they've all ended up exactly where they wanted to be. And none of them thought they could be. That's what I'm passionate about. Just getting people, just women especially, to believe and to acknowledge what's there already. Yeah. Oh, my God, 100%. And what you said then about the inattentiveness of not notice, noticing what we're good at, because that just hits the nail on the head. I mean, I spent my whole life putting other people on a pedestal and not noticing all the things that I could do. And it would always constantly be my husband coming back and saying to me, why can't you see what I can see? 
and I was just like, because I can see all the negatives and all the failures and all the things mm. that I know I'm not good at. And yes, that those things that I wasn't good at were real things, but I had, I didn't have the capability to really recognize what I was good at. But I, what I did know is there was resilience there and there was tenacity there. And I knew that I wanted to live a fulfilled life with purpose. So I just kept going and kept going. And thank God I found out that it was ADHD. And thank God this is like, I now realize this is what I love. But it can, it often just takes for the ADHD diagnosis to give us these gifts of what you're talking about, of the self-belief, of the acknowledgement, the recognition, the validation. So this is, I guess this is why, you know, you're doing what you're doing. This is why I've got this podcast, because I think awareness is key. And when we don't have the awareness, that's when it can feel very difficult and hard and exhausting I'm not saying that once you know you've got ADHD and you're aware everything is like you know perfect because we still have these uphill struggles but just just to know that we've got options we've got medication we've got therapy we've got you know books to read podcasts to listen to so mm. before we close, I wanted to ask you what your vision is now, especially with going back to the prison system and, and the changes that you want to make. I know you are a massive campaigner. You're an advocate for change within the prison system, especially around ADHD. What's your vision? If you had to leave a legacy, what, what would that be? I want to be the person that made the laws change around testings of offenders originally I wanted all offenders tested on induction wings An induction wing in a prison is something that every new prisoner goes on to and every prisoner who's changed prison goes on to there's a certain thing called an induction wing and on the induction wing you're not allowed to do anything as in you're not allowed visits you're not allowed to go to the gym you're not allowed to go to the library you're not allowed to have a job so there's very little things that you can do you sit on induction for at least a fortnight some people it's longer and while you're on induction, they test you for English, maths, hearing, uh, sight, um, sexual transmitted infections. They ask you about self-harm. All of these things take about a day. And for the rest of the time, the boys sit there bored stupid because they have nothing to do. And as I said to everybody, the one thing they're not testing them for is the one thing pretty much all of them have got. And that's ADHD. So I just want to make it that it, it is a law, or not law, a regulation, shall we say, that included in those tests in the induction wing is an ADHD test and an ASD test, because while we're at it, let's do ASD as well as ADHD. Uh, but it, on my journey with this, I've been joined by some people from the police. Um, and I've now got four uh, currently serving police officers who are passionate and they're absolutely right about this that people need testing before they get into the prison. They need testing when they come into the police stations for the first time. So I've now kind of expanded my dream. And my dream is that there's testing in police stations. And we've got some very high police officers involved in this, you know, the heads of neurodiversity in the police and all the rest of it. We want everybody coming into a police station for the first time. So as soon as they get any sort of file or record on that initial file is an ADHD and ASD test. So that if they score high for either, they are immediately referred. And I don't mean referred and then it just drops into an abyss. I mean that they everything is put on hold. So if they've been arrested for, let's say, criminal damage or whatever, that stops there, right there, until they've got the assessment, the diagnosis, the medication. And then any court case or whatever can happen. But it shouldn't happen until they've got the correct diagnosis. So we are now pushing. So on my gravestone, I would like it to say, that she is the person that made all offenders be tested for ADHD. That's been my goal. 
ever since I left the prison system in 2016, um, I have sworn, because I left an awful lot of them behind, that I would never rest until they are all tested for ADHD. And not only that, all the, there are tens of thousands of them in prison with ADHD, diagnosed, but not allowed their meds because they're in prison. That needs to change as well. Because in prison, they're kicking off, they're locked up for 23 hours a day. Imagine doing that to an ADHD person on their own. They, they're going literally mad with boredom in there. So I want everybody in prison to be able to take their ADHD medication if they're diagnosed. Um, and it will make a massive difference because there's a mental health nurse I know who's worked in the prison service for 20 years. She's got a lot more experience than me. But when, wherever we meet on these Facebook groups, she always says to me, Sarah, this figure of 25% or 40%, 40% is the highest figure you'll ever hear of people saying that potentially 40% of the prison, to, uh, prison population has ADHD. This lady always says to me, we know different, don't we, Sarah? I put it at 85%. That's a mental health nurse who's worked in the prison system for 20 years. 85% she thinks are. I would, I would always go with young offenders. I've always said it's three out of four. It's at least 75% of them in young offenders. Adult male, I don't know. Well in excess of 50%, but I, I wouldn't be able to put a figure on it. But, you know, it's a, it's a colossal amount of people. And that's not to forget the amount of ASD people in prison as well. I have seen a lot of, of ASD people who should not have been there, you know, who really could not cope with prison life. They often put on the segregation wing because they can't cope with the noise and the, the chaos of, you know, um, the normal wings. So I've, I fight hard for ASD people as well and people with other mental health conditions. There's, there's people in there with severe sort of schizophrenia, um, bipolar, all sorts of things. They get absolutely no help in there. They get no medications. If they fight to see a, a GP. So I'm kind of taking on the whole mental health situation in prisons, which is appalling, but the biggest well, let's just say the biggest tragedy, but that's not the quite the word, is the amount of ADHD. Because if that was only identified and medicated, not only would it half clear the prison system, it would make people's lives, the other people on the outside, there'd be less robberies, less burglaries, less muggings, you know, there'd be less people trying to get money for their next hit, their next fix, because the addicted people would need to be taking heroin, whatever. So it's a win-win situation and the government would save an awful lot of money as well because the prisons would be half-emptied. It was an announcement about a week ago that they're building new prisons and building this and extending this and they're going to renovate Aylesbury, which needs knocking down. It's a dreadful place. They're going to renovate that. They don't need to do that. They just need to test all the people in there for ADHD. They clear half the place. You know, it's ridiculous. So that, that is my, my big bugbear and, and that's what I'd like on my gravestone, that I managed to change the the non-testing of offenders for ADHD. It is ludicrous and I will get it changed. I will. I believe that, 100% believe that. And, and I wish you so much luck with it. I think what you've talked about is, is hugely important. I think the awareness around it, you know, just for people to understand what's going on, I find it fascinating. And I know for a fact that you will, you'll make huge change. Tell me where where can people find you, Sarah? Because I think after this conversation, people will want to find you, work with you, read your book. We mentioned right at the very beginning, and I'm I'm one of them. 
that you have got the biggest team of diagnosed ADHD therapists on your books, which is, you know, that's a big thing because if you've got ADHD, it's very nice to speak to someone who completely understands and has been there and resonates. So tell people how they can find this amazing team. Okay. Of people. Well, um, the, the one thing as you, you did say earlier, I am very passionate that people with an ADHD brain should be counseled or coached by somebody else with an ADHD brain, because if you don't understand it, you, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to work. So I am passionate that people with ADHD can find a therapist, a coach, counselor, whatever with ADHD. So if you're looking for therapy for ADHD, then it's headstuffadhdtherapy.co.uk. Um, people who run into trouble with the law and with addiction, we have a separate co company for that. That's called Headstuff ADHD Liberty. And that's the, 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 the company logo for that one is fighting for your freedom from addiction and crime. So anybody who's got trouble with the police because of neurodiversity, we are very passionate about helping there. So it's Headstuff ADHD Therapy, Headstuff ADHD Liberty, and the book that I've written, which originally was for parents of ADHD children, but a lot of the parents said it was just helpful for me. And then I suddenly realized that obviously the traits don't change. So while you're a child, it's, it's, I have educated people, hopefully, on what the main traits are and how to manage them. But it's actually been as helpful for adults, loads of adults. I said, oh my God, this has been amazing. I now understand myself. Thanks very much. So, um, so the book is called How Not to Murder Your ADHD Kid. Instead, learn to be your child's own ADHD coach. So and that would not have happened. Again, you see, talking about the belief thing, that was a friend of mine who believed in me. She badgered me for ages to write that book. I didn't think I could probably do it, but I did. And now it's, it's the, the main reason I'm loving the fact that it's selling really well and getting good reviews is because it's helping so many families. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get to the children before they get to young offender stage. I wanted the parents to understand them, stop battling them, understand their ADHD brains and work with them, get them the adrenaline from something other than nicking cars, you know, get them on the right path before it gets too late and it can get too late at 12, 13. So that's why I wanted to write the book for the parents of the young kids to really understand their brains. And I'm thrilled to death when people say, oh my God, this has transformed our household. You know, that, that's what gives me the buzz now mm -hmm. is helping keep these kids away from the criminal justice system. That is my big passion. I, I will get it changed that they've got to be tested. But my other big passion is keeping teenagers away from the criminal justice system. That's Amazing. my big Passion. Amazing. And, and honestly, I can only imagine how many families must be so grateful. So I will make sure that all the details are on the podcast show notes so people can go and, and download everything they need to. Sarah, thank you so, so much. It's been, I mean, I love listening to you talk. Your passion is just I don't know anyone else that's more passionate than you and knowledgeable. And I've learned so much from you. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very grateful. So that's today's episode done. Did what we talk about resonate with you? I really hope you found some takeaways that may inspire you to make some small changes that enhance your daily life. And if you did find this episode insightful, please do consider sharing it. Knowledge and awareness is power, especially with ADHD. You can also head over to the show's Instagram page, which is ADHD Women's Wellbeing Pod, and join the community that's waiting for you there. And if this episode really did strike a chord, please do consider leaving us a review to enable more people who need to hear these conversations find the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and see you next time.